for those that have been with us. We've been studying this book for uh, since uh, began last fall. I've uh, been looking at it um, for uh, through the fall, rather than break at, uh, at, at the time of Advent, at uh, Christmas time, uh, resuming back. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention is uh, just as a, a reminder, when we began this series, as we did in the series that we did with Romans, uh, we issued a challenge to those of you who are part of the congregation, uh, a way, a challenge that we believe will uh, actually uh, benefit to you, uh, enhancing the experience of uh, the study that we have. And that challenge is this, is we, we have challenged those who are part of the congregation to read through the book of Hebrews once a month for each month that we are studying it. Uh, and so if somebody had picked up that challenge with us in September, they would have read it in September, in October, November, taken a break in, in December, picked up again in January, uh, and we would have now uh, read through it uh, several, several different times. It's not a long book. Uh, it would only be uh, a matter of a few chapters per week, which is not a lot of time. But one of the things that you find when you read through this over and over again is that you pick up things, that you, details that you perhaps had overlooked uh, in, in the previous readings. So by the time that we are done with this series, you would have read this uh, over uh, so many times, you could almost repeat it in your, in your sleep. Uh, but more important than that, uh, the words of the Lord will resonate with you, not only when we are preaching it, but will come to mind uh, as you are communing with him through fellowship, through worship, through, uh, through prayer. And so I just wanted to remind everyone of that uh, challenge that we've issued, which we believe is beneficial for all of us. Uh, to read through this once per month. Uh, if you haven't started in January, good news is you can do, you know, half of it today, half of it tomorrow, you got the whole thing done. So, um, and then start all over again on, on, uh, on Tuesday. Uh, but I also, this morning, uh, want to turn your attention to Hebrews chapter 4, if you'll open up there. Uh, for those who are students uh, of, of, of the Bible, uh, just as a note, we're, we're moving today into a, a new uh, section, at least as uh, this book is outlined. Uh, as the first uh, part of this book up into uh, chapter 4, verse 13, uh, Bible scholars say that this was focusing on the superiority of the person of Christ. Uh, now we look, begin the work, look at the superiority of the work of Christ. And, and that section of this letter uh, continues through Hebrews 10, the middle of Hebrews 10, uh, which we won't get to until next fall. So, uh, but just for those who like to outline and, and see things that way, I uh, just thought I would mention that note. But this morning, our passage that we focus on, Hebrews 4.14 uh, into Hebrews 5 up to, up to first, verse 10. Hebrews 4.14, hear the word of the Lord. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us, hold, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and, and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of, his, of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices 
for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this portion of our service, may we serve you by listening and allowing you to serve us, being reminded that you have sent the Son not to be served, but to serve. Lord, may we honor you by giving our ear to the word that you have recorded through the writer of this letter. May we not only hear, but may we receive. Uh, we pray, though, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would grant, have understanding of what it is that you speak to us. And not only what it is that you're saying, but of our own need. Help us to see uh, how this word applies to us in particular ways, that we may experience what you have intended for us. That this word would not only inform us about Jesus, but it would form us in our relationship with you in the way that we live our lives. Uh, Lord, shape us, we pray through this word, until all reach full maturity in Christ. We pray this in accordance with your promise in the incomparable name of Jesus Christ, who is the Word incarnated. Amen. I have what some might call a, a love-hate relationship with bridges. On the one hand, I, I'm fascinated by bridges, the engineering, the architecture, and, and, and the history at times. When I, I lived in Pittsburgh, a city that's uh, known as the, the city of bridges, although most people are not aware of it because it has, uh, has uh, 446 bridges, more than any bri city in the world, including there's more bridges in the city of Pittsburgh than there are in the city of Venice in Italy. And when I lived there, I would marvel, not just at the fact that there were so many, but particularly some of the older ones, the, the, the detail, the artistry that went into these bridges, particularly on, on the ends of them, sometimes even uh, in, the, uh, in the design of them. So not only are they incredibly functional engineering, uh, but they become, in many cases, artistic uh, works uh, that beautify a city. I thought about the history of some of the smaller of the bridges, the city that is so blue-collar, people working almost anonymously for all their lives, and how many of them would walk over many of those bridges to their workplaces and, and back again. When I'm here in the Hampton Roads, whenever I'm crossing the James River Bridge, I'm, I, 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 I often uh, think about the fact that when it was completed in 1928, it was the longest bridge across water in the world. And then thinking that in one sense 1928 was a long time ago, but in the span of history, it is but a blip. And so bridges often fascinate me, and I'm intrigued with them. And I look at them, and those that appeal 
I'll, I'll often uh, Google and, and learn more about them, which may indicate to some of you I need to get a hobby or a life, but that's, uh, that may be one of my hobbies. And so, uh, I, I, in that sense, I have this great fascination and great love of bridges. But on the other hand, there are bridges that I dread. Surprisingly, the, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge is not one of them. Uh, it goes from Annapolis over to uh, Kent Island in Maryland and rises over 200 feet above the water. It's a bridge that many people who live there are afraid to go over. In fact, I, I saw a documentary one time uh, about the Chesapeake Bay, not about the bridge, but, uh, and it was just included, that there are people who live there that are so afraid to cross the bridge, even though they no, must do that to get to work either in one side or the other, uh, there are people who, as part of their job, they ferry people across the bridge. You know, they'll pick you up on one side of the bridge and then they fill their car up or their, their station wagon. They drive them across, drop them off, take up people, go back the other side. And they just ferry people across this bridge. And it's understandable, 200 feet above the water could be quite frightening. For whatever the reason, that bridge has never bothered me. Now, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, that's another thing entirely. As I've shared before, there's been many, many times I've gone over that thing, and the only thing that crosses my mind for 19 miles is, you're not supposed to drive on the ocean. And so with my eyes looked firmly ahead at the yellow lines that are before me, not to the right, not to the left, I take good biblical counsel on this one, don't look to the right, don't look to the left, just look straight ahead, I plunge my way through that. And while most people hate the tunnels, that's the point in which I have found respite. <sighs> Made it through. This other thing could collapse and I could drown, but I won't fall off the edge uh, at, at this point. Although the last few times I've done that bridge, it really hasn't been a problem. I won't say that it's been, you know, the, the highlight of my day, but I've made it and I've even been able to look out a little bit for a moment uh, and to, to, to see the, uh, the sea on the horizon. But there's still one bridge. The bridge that takes you over to Whitestone on the northern neck. That no matter how much I try to rationalize for myself, my knuckles are white the whole time. I'm squeezing the steering wheel, which I'm not sure how that would help, but I'm squeezing the steering wheel. Once in a while, I try to, you know, lighten up, but it's only a matter of seconds. I, I feel the adrenaline surging through me. I would not want to take a blood pressure test while I am on that bridge. And to make matters worse, the last several times I've gone over that bridge, they've been doing construction, so I get stuck on that bridge, sitting there while cars are coming, and I think in lanes that are only half the size that they should legally be, uh, trucks and cars coming over, speeding at me, I, I dread going over that bridge. And so I have a love-hate relationship with bridges. But whether one hates bridges or whether one uh, enjoys bridges, one thing we all will agree on is without bridges, it would be very difficult, maybe even impossible, for us to get where it is that we're trying to go. In God's redemptive plan through history, he has appointed a priesthood to serve as a bridge, a bridge between two worlds, between earth and heaven, a bridge between God and people. The priesthood was established with a, a number of, of men who would serve and offer sacrifices led by uh, the high priest who would each year, particularly on uh, Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, offer uh, the sacrifice uh, for the year by which, if it was accepted by God, it would be the people would be forgiven of their sin for another year. People would celebrate and rejoice. 
But I found it interesting, as one uh, Bible commentator noted, that the Latin term for high priest, which is pontifex maximus, uh, is actually uh, a word that, that, that uh, a phrase that refers to this bridge aspect of the function of the priesthood. The word maximus is great, or maximum, which we would get. It's so maximum greatness is, is, is easy for us. But the word pontifex is comprised of two words, pons, which means bridge, and facio, which means to build or to make. And so even in the establishment of the priesthood, the, the, the nature of the priest, which is to carry out functions for the people, uh, between God and between the people, we see the image, even in, in, the, in the name, uh, of, of the bridge that is able to span the gulf that our sin has created between us and God. The writer of the Hebrews in the passage that we're looking at this morning is pointing us to Jesus and declaring that he is the true, the ultimate, and the promised high priest. He says, as we, we look at in, in verse 14, says, we have a, a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And so he, he's pointing to us, and the word sense indicates that something else is going to come. But he's making a declaration to the people, the people that he was originally writing to. Again, we weren't, aren't sure specifically who they are, but what is universally accepted is they were Jewish believers, people who had grown up with a Jewish heritage, had heard the message of the gospel, had trusted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection as their hope by which they would be reconciled to God. Most believe that they were living in Rome, and regardless of where the city that they lived, it's also universally understood that they were experiencing a period of persecution, significant period of persecution. Not something that had just started, but they had been enduring it for some time by the time this letter was written to them. Consequently, many of the people who had professed faith in Jesus Christ were beginning to turn away, in part thinking maybe if we turn away and we go back to our, our previous ways, maybe some of the pressure will ease up on us. Maybe they were thinking pragmatically, like many Americans do, is, you know, this isn't working for me anymore. I felt joy and I felt relief when I first came. It seems so simple. If I just simply trusted in the death of Jesus Christ as my ultimate sacrifice, my sins are forgiven and I can be reconciled to God. And now with all this persecution and no cultural cachet that goes along with being a Christian, maybe I'll, you know, not reject him, but start looking for something else. But many of the people that were part of the church to whom this letter was sent were beginning to turn back to their previous ways, to their rituals, and to even some cases, some, some superstitions uh, as their way of trying to appease God and to earn the way back into God's favor. It's to people like that that the writer of Hebrews writes this verse. We have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, which is a kind of a, a nod to the deity of Jesus, which he's already established earlier in this letter pass through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. He's writing this in order that they might be encouraged, they might be rerooted, and that they might respond in some ways that we'll look at as we wrap up here in a moment. 
but it's quite likely that the original recipients of this letter, those who read it at first, would have likely pushed back at this statement that Jesus is the high priest who has offered the sacrifice of himself in order that we might be reconciled to God. It's not, again, that they necessarily developed any antipathy against Jesus. But remembering these were people who grew up with a, a Jewish heritage, they certainly would have been aware of the laws of God. And more than one of them would have recognized when this guy points out or points to Jesus and saying he's the high priest and pushed back saying he can't be the priest. Because in the law of God, the one who is the priest must come from the tribe of Levi, must be in the order of Aaron. And Jesus, as you've taught him about us, is, is from the line of David. He is from the, the tribe of Judah. And in Israel, through their history, one could not be both a priest and a king. They were two distinct orders, and it was embedded in their code. The specific tribe, just the, the tribe of Levi, was set apart for the priesthood itself. And nobody who was Levi would able, from the tribe of Levi could become the king, and, and nobody who was not of the tribe of Levi could be a priest. Those two offices were intentionally separated. And so these readers who had already embraced Jesus would have certainly been skeptical when they hear this phrase that we have a high priest, Jesus, who is the Son of God. And they had reason that they should push back. They would push back based on God's law, God's scripture. But in this passage, the writer of Hebrews does something that those folks were not expecting, and maybe we don't take notice. He doesn't deny that the law says that the priesthood should come through the line of Aaron. Therefore, those who will be priests should be Levites. And he doesn't say, try to make some claim saying, yeah, but somewhere along the line, we can trace everything back, and, and Jesus has some connection uh, to the Levites as well. But tipping into Psalm 110, he says, look, I understand all of that, and that's the, that's the normal priesthood uh, among men. Uh, but Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he's every bit as much of a priest, but he doesn't come through the line of Aaron. He comes through a, a special line, a, a line that had only been expressed once in the history of creation in the man named Melchizedek who appears in, in the book of Genesis to Abram. And Abram falls down before him and he bows and he worships and he offers his tithes to him. Many Bible scholars would say Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Christ. There are times throughout the, the scriptures that the, the, uh, they're, they're called Christophanies. They are pre-incarnation expressions of Christ where someone, sometimes it's referred to just uh, as, as merely an angel, other times uh, in a person like Melchizedek, uh, but somebody appears on the moment and then disappears for, for the moment. But they're the metaphysical manifestations of a person, and many Bible scholars would say they are, are Jesus and Melchizedek being one of those. But the uniqueness of Melchizedek through the history, and he's not mentioned a whole lot, and I'm not going to go into great detail because we're going to look at him a little bit more in, in chapter 7, is that he's the only one in all of the history that was recognized as a prophet, a priest, and a king. 
He was the only one that was able to hold all three of those offices. And the prophets, by God's inspiration, pointed to Melchizedek and saying that the Messiah who was going to come would come in the order of Melchizedek. He would be a prophet, he would be a priest, he would be a king. He would have all three of those offices, which is one of the reasons why it was such a strong division that you could not be a king, you could not be a, you could not be a king and a priest or a priest and a king uh, because it would confuse people. For those of you who are students of the Old Testament, you, you, you may have seen when Saul, who as king, was ready to go into battle. And Samuel, the prophet, hadn't shown up yet. Not wanting to lead this people into battle without the blessing of God and no sacrifice having been offered, Saul seemed to think to himself, well, I've seen Samuel do this, and we want God's favor, and so he offered the sacrifice, and right as he finished the sacrifice, Samuel shows up and says, what have you done? And then he loses his kingship over that, which always struck me as incredibly harsh because somebody who was just trying to bring God's favor and do what he'd seen done uh, was trying to seek God's face, trying to do the right thing. And, you know, it's Samuel's fault. He didn't show up on time. And if all was at stake was the guy who, you know, kind of stepped into something that really wasn't his job description, it would be harsh. Saul functioning as a priest, if that would have been allowed to stand, it confuses the people and people would have put their trust in, in a very deeply flawed man as opposed to the one who was to come later, who is not David, even as people thought, but is the one who came in the line of David, the son of David, Jesus Christ. That all was related to Melchizedek. And here the, the writer points to it a couple of times in, in this passage and says that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. He absolutely is a, is a priest, a, a legitimate priest. He's one of the priests who was to come and to ultimately bridge that gap between man and God. And the writer goes on and he, he describes Jesus and some of the qualifications that he has. In, in verse 5, we, we see kind of a, a comparison and a contrast. In verse 1, speaking of the, of the priesthood, verse 1 of chapter 5, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. That's kind of the, the bridge imagery again. What isn't evident as much there, at least not the way the ESV uh, extracts it, is, is that the priest must be chosen from among men. It's not just, that, it's not just okay, the, the priests that are chosen from among men, that's, that's true, but it is also a requirement that the priest must be chosen among men. But as the writer of Hebrews has already done earlier, pointing out to the deity of Christ, which he reflects when he talks about the high priest we have who has come through the heavens, passed through the heavens. He's reminding us here not only of the deity of Christ, but also of the humanity of Christ, because the high priest, the priests, all must be come from men. Jesus came from among uh, men. He who was God in very nature uh, also took on our nature, and he was fully man and fully God. And the ancients who write the, the, the creeds say, without mixture or confusion. And I don't know about you, but it's difficult for me to think about that without also having my head spin, so it seems somewhat confusing. It's just two things that we need to hold to, even though they, they, they seem difficult for us to hold together in, in our minds, that somebody could be fully God and, and fully man at the same time. And it's not a mixture of, uh, of those two together, so that, which would make him 50-50. But he's 100% God and he's 100% man. And that adds up, in my mind, to 200%, and it just kind of, you know, it, it, it's one of those 
mysteries that I have to hold to, uh, even if I have difficulty comprehending. But the writer is pointing out that the, the whole purpose, and Jesus, who was, uh, was born of Mary, who lived uh, his life uh, and then entered into his ministry, uh, just like everyone else, he had come from among men in order to offer sacrifices, uh, in this case, um, himself. The second characteristic and reason that the, they're supposed to, the people are supposed to come, the priests were supposed to come from among men, it, it, we see in verse 2 there. So he can deal gently and ignorantly with the wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. And so Jesus being a man, as we've already heard, we, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us because he's been tempted in every way as we are. The only difference is he was without sin. The writer of Hebrews goes on and says, because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the other people. Now, this one gets a little bit tougher. And we understand it with the other priests. The other priests are just as, as we are. They have their own sin. They've got to deal with it. Before they deal with the sins of other people, they must become pure. And therefore, they need to become purified. So they need to offer sacrifices for their own sins in order that they can offer the sacrifices for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, he became sin for, on our part. And yet his death destroyed death because of sin. The one sacrifice is sufficient for all. When it says if he became sin, it's because he took our sin upon himself, though he himself never sinned. But in his death, he destroyed sin. And then he goes on and reminds us, just as no one takes this honor for himself, he's only called by God. So Jesus Christ did not exalt himself as a high priest who was appointed, but he was appointed by the one who said, you're my son. I've begotten you. And you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews is dispelling their concerns that Jesus is not qualified to be a priest by pointing to the fact that he is a priest from a different order and yet he fulfills all the qualifications and all of the functions that an ordinary priest does except that he is a superior priest because he himself is without sin. Now, all of this might be interesting uh, enough, but, uh, you know, particularly for those who, who, who like to study it. And, and it would be reasonable just to sit there and say, this is Jesus and what he's done and stand in awe and worship him. So we ask the question, what are we to do with this? I think that the writer here gives us a couple of directions as we consider Jesus, who is our priest. First and foremost, we, we see it in the first verse that we read this morning in verse 14. Since we have this great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. In other words, let's make sure that we cling to that truth, both with what we declare to be our functional faith, our faith, and, and also how we relate to God. The reason this is significant is 
really found in the, the passages leading up here. So the writer of Hebrews is speaking to a people who are now incredibly restless. They're experiencing this persecution. They're not sure where they need to turn. What is it that we need to do? How is it that we are going to experience the, the rest of God, God's rest that he has promised? And you remember right, a few weeks ago, we, we looked back and he, he said that the reason that the ancient Israel didn't experience the rest is they didn't believe God. And so therefore they wandered for 40 years, a whole generation before they were allowed to enter into the promised land, the land that had they been obedient to God would have experienced rest, God's rest. Instead they tasted it but never experienced it in the fullness that it was promised. And the writer uses that analogy so he's pointing to them and saying, look, the reason they didn't experience the rest that God had for them is because they didn't believe God. And the reason you're not experiencing the rest is because right now, with all the things swirling around you and pressing upon you, some of you are not believing God. You're not believing God, the promise that he's made, the, the promise that he's made that is fulfilled in the, the Messiah here, the high priest. And so consequently, not necessarily that you're no longer God's people and that God has rejected you, but by not believing God, you're not experiencing the peace and the rest that you long for and that God has promised. We need to believe God. And then as Camper pointed out to us, one of the ways that we believe God is we spend time in his word and we hear God's promises so that we know what God has promised, what God hasn't promised, and so that we're, we, are, we are clear and we're constantly reminded and we are hearing God's voice. But all of the scripture points to this person of Jesus who God has provided to be our high priest, who would offer the sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, to pay the penalty of our sin, that we not only are forgiven, but now also declared, credited with his righteousness, are brought, reconciled to God as forgiven people, loved people. The word constantly is testifying, pointing to that and pointing back to this. And here the writer of Hebrews is saying, since we have this high priest reminding us of what Jesus did, we need to cling to that which we confess. That our hope does not rest upon our labors, our sacrifices, our, our, our successes. Nor are they forfeited by our frailties, our weaknesses, and our failures. But our hope rests upon the person of Jesus Christ and whether or not he actually sacrificed himself and then rose again from the dead. The historic reality of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, we rest upon that because every promise and the rest between us and God, the idea that we no longer need to strive and, and struggle to get God's favor, we see that God has given us favor by the fact that he sent his own son to die for us. The fact that we don't have to worry about what God thinks about us or, or feels about us anymore because we are told God so loved that he sent his own son to die. And this is how we know what love is. While we were still God's enemies, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. And those who believe, we're not only reconciled to God, but we can stop and rest in that truth.
And the writer of Hebrews here is saying, take a moment, step back, and see if there, there is the connection between what you say you believe and, and how you're living. And if we cling to this confession, we can taste the rest of God. We need to cling to this confession. But I think it goes even more than that, because that would be incredibly good news to begin with. It's good enough to know that God's not against you. I mean, but that's not all the message. The writer of the Hebrews then points again, as we go back into chapter 14, and now hear these words, he's not only not against us, but for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are without sin. In other words, that's as he can identify with us. So whatever you're struggling with, he gets it. And there is some comfort in knowing that. From time to time when people are going through storms in their lives, many people might offer them words of comfort and encouragement, and, and they may very well be appreciated. But if somebody else has endured or is enduring that same storm, it's amazing how much more weight those words have. Yeah, I don't speak about it often, but since I had uh, cancer a number of years ago, at times when people in our congregation or others that I encounter have cancer, I'm able to speak to them about my experience, and, and they know that I understand. And so therefore, the words of encouragement can be encouraged. A little bit more in detail and, and far less frequent, but there's occasionally, there's been even a few cases in our own congregation, where some, for whatever the reasons, have to get a colostomy. And during my time of cancer, I had to have I had a colostomy for six months. And so I'm able to talk with those people and say, you know what? It's not that I recommend it, but it's far worse to think about than it is to have. I'm very glad that mine was reversible. So don't need to be looking. The, the, the extension is not a colostomy. Uh, it's, uh, it's a whole other issue. But there is something very different than if I were to say, you know, I, I, I read some things about that and it seems to be, you know, people do just fine. I read the literature before I had it. Didn't excite me. Didn't give me any comfort to see some guy, you know, supposedly going out and play golf and swimming. What are they supposed to put in the literature? And this passage is saying somewhat to you, whatever it is that you're struggling with, and well, Jesus may not have had that same struggle, same temptation, but he knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is uh, to, to struggle. One, we see the evidences of that in the beginning of his ministry when he went out into the wilderness, we're told that he was tempted. Well, if he wasn't tempted, then we wouldn't call them the temptations. But we also see it on the night before he was crucified. I was asked years ago by one of the junior high girls in, in a church that I had served in, in Pittsburgh, if Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified, why didn't he just run away? I think that's a good question. You know, we know the Sunday school answer is the answer. is because he knew that he needed to do that on our behalf. But when you think about the prayer and what was going on between him and the Father in the garden, he said, if there's any other way, let's go that direction. Why? Because he knew the fear of the pain and the rejection that he was about to experience. 
And in his flesh, he responded in the same way that you and I would if we knew that's what was coming in the morning. And so we have this priest who is God, who sometimes because of that truth, we, we claim we, we love him and we, we serve him and, and we appreciate him, but we can't see how he could possibly identify with us. And this writer of Hebrews is saying to those who are in the middle of storms of life, he gets it. And because he gets it, he moves on in verse 15, which is even more than just recognize him and rest in what he has done for you. But he is an invitation here. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our times of need. In other words, he who is God, who is also a person who understands us, who loves us, is approachable. Let us draw near. It's not just God's forgiven us and let us go on with our lives and then you know, build a, a weekly rhythm of honoring him and make sure we don't dishonor him in the way that we live. We're called invited to, to draw near. Now, worship certainly is one of the things that he has in mind where God has promised to be in the midst of his people wherever they gather in his name. And, and, he, and he's here in, in, in the person of his Holy Spirit. And then he's, he says sometimes, because George Barna did a, a study of, uh, a number of years ago of evangelical Christians. And it was, I can't remember the specific statistics that they were astounding, but it was something to the effect of, of um, more than half of the evangelical Christians said that they hadn't experienced God in the presence, uh, presence in worship in uh, the past year. And, um, uh, or no, had ever experienced the presence of God. And 80% said they hadn't experienced the presence of God in, in, in the past year. It's a mystical presence. And so, you know, it's, it's difficult to declare, but we need at times to remind one another, God is here. We didn't come here and invite him, he invited us. And he invites us to draw near, but drawing near is not just part of their weekly rhythm of worship, it's to come and talk to him. He invites us to pray and to converse with God, to share what's on our heart. We don't need to come with a formula like we do often, you know, seem like as you lead congregational prayer. Just talk with him. I mean, it goes back to the old Sunday school, but, you know, the shortest, uh, you know, the shortest prayer uh, in history is recorded in the scriptures. After Peter stopped walking on the water and he began to sink, he yelled, help. That's a prayer. Talk to him, draw near, converse with the God who understands you who has redeemed you and is inviting to draw near. Talk with him is not just our talking to God through prayer, but listen to him. We engage as we hear his voice by the power of his spirit through this word that he's recorded for us. Draw near, let's draw near with confidence. We have the confidence because God has promised this. This is not something that we have concocted on our own. And in order to do that, we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions. And I'm wrapping it up here. Are we drawing near and talking with God? Are we experiencing the, the peace, the joy, the, the blessing, the intimacy that we're invited to experience? Many places, but specifically here in, in this passage. Or are we blinded and deafened 
by tradition and culture. I said that because, as I pointed out, that the reason that the writer of Hebrews and most commentators are, are clear in this, the reason he goes on and gives such detail about the priesthood of Jesus is because the expectation that these people would have pushed back, rightly so in some ways. But they were so rooted in their tradition that the priesthood only came through Aaron. They were so focused on that that they were hesitant to embrace Jesus fully as the priest who was promised because they had become so nearsighted to their tradition. Their tradition was full of truths, but it wasn't the only truth that is there. And particularly for those who have grown up in the church, and maybe even more so uh, those who have had the, uh, the blessing of growing up in covenant tradition. And there's no sarcasm in that because it is a tremendous blessing. But sometimes corresponding with that, those who have grown up in mom and dad and grandma and uh, told to talk to you the Bible from the very beginning, sometimes resonating with us because we learned it at our earliest days, what grandma says trumps anything else and we can overlook everything that, even when it's clear in the scriptures. We just, for some reason, it just doesn't connect with us. And so we can miss, we can be blinded, not because somebody told us something is wrong, but because somebody told us something that has, has, takes such a, a place in our perspective that we miss what God speaks elsewhere. We can be blinded simply by our tradition. We in the Reformed Church, we can be so blinded simply because we you know, some are, try so hard to make sure everything is conformity with the five points of Calvinism. And that we, that not recognizing or not creating a category because there's some things that seem, don't seem to fit, and yet God says them. What is our authority? Is it God? And are we blinded by that? And culture also. Some things are easy to believe when it's acceptable in culture, but other things are more difficult to believe when, you know what, to accept what God has to say is going to make you uncool. And so we can look for other ways to explain things that we can still fit in rather than clearly what God has spoken to us. And so we need to evaluate that, whether we're able to hear and to see and whether we're clinging to something, particularly when we're confronted with truths that uh, in the Scripture that just make us uncomfortable. Because peace only comes in, in, in this truth. And we only become what we are supposed to be when we are conformed to this one priest that we draw near to. I'm not musical in any way, shape, or form, but I'm told this, is that if you are going to tune a whole bunch of pianos or if you're going to tune a whole bunch of, of uh, you know, violins or whatever string instruments there may be, you don't tune one and then tune the other to that one who is, which has been tuned, but you need to tune everything to the same tuning fork. Because no matter how close you try to tune it to the other instrument, there's going to be a variance. The only way those instruments become the same is if they are tuned to the same fork, which is Jesus, our high priest. I've also read that it's true that is if there are two pianos in a room and you play one of the notes in one, even the other one, if nobody is playing it, there is a very faint resonating that that note is actually picked up in the other piano string. And that comes to play here because we have a high priest who understands us in every way. There is that connection. He has come and become like us. And by the power of his spirit and having freed us from our sin, we might become like him. And in that, we find rest and peace and joy. 
So let us draw near to the priest who has come to us. Let's come boldly, confidently, and joyfully. Father, we give thanks to you this day for this word and ultimately for Jesus. May we cling to him. May we draw near. May we experience grace. We pray in Jesus. Amen.